Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fraggle Byrne. Every week I speak to leading figures from the world of sustainability and explore the sustainability agenda in marketing and strategy, technology, innovation, investment and finance. We look at the latest thinking, what's working and the future and evolution of the sustainability agenda. I'm very pleased today to welcome Tim Freundlich to the podcast. Tim is head of Impact Assets, a non-profit financial services firm that focuses on proving the flow of capital into investments that deliver financial, social and environmental returns. Tim is a long-time innovator in new financial instruments in the social enterprise sector. He worked previously at Calvert Foundation for 12 years, where he conceived of and launched the Donor Advised Fund. He was also instrumental in building the $250 million community investment note, with more than $1 billion invested in 300-plus non-profits and for-profits globally. Tim co-founded and serves as managing partner for Good Capital, that in addition to its flagship social enterprise expansion fund, founded the 2,500-person annual Social Capital Markets Conferences in San Francisco and four impact hubs in the US. Thank you very much, Jay, for taking the time today to speak to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. Thanks so much, Virgil. It's a pleasure to be with you. Great. So I'm really looking forward to speaking to you about the great work that you're doing and how you came to be involved in B-Lab and the, the, the whole B-Corp movement and the great potential that is uh, unfolding. Um, so, yes, can you just tell me maybe a little bit about your background and how you came to set up B-Lab? Of course, be a pleasure. Um, so I'm one of three co-founders of B-Lab, which is the nonprofit that serves the global B-Corp movement. And uh, Andrew Kasoy, Bart Hula, and myself are longtime college buddies who had uh, fortunate and successful first careers in the private sector as entrepreneurs, operators, and investors. And uh, as we were sort of exiting that first phase of our career and looking to take a big swing at what was next, we all sort of independently came to the realization uh, that there was this incredible latent power in the private sector uh, that could be harnessed for a higher purpose than just uh, producing private wealth you know, and maximizing profits. And there was a lot of entrepreneurial activity, a lot of investment activity, um, and a lot of policymakers all interested in supporting what people now talk about as like business for good. And we thought it would be a lot of fun uh, to put our shoulders to that problem and try to see what we could do to support those kinds of entrepreneurs and those kinds of investors who wanted to use business uh, to both to make money, but also, uh, and more importantly, to make a difference. Great. Great. Excellent. I just pick up slight background sound there, somebody talking in the background. So just, um, is that, is, is, is just... Uh, I'm in a room by myself and it's an open office. Yeah. So 30 Wait, feet away, there is another person talking on the phone. That'll come and go. Okay. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't, don't worry. I just wanted to just let you, give you some feedback on that. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Fantastic. So no, um, that's very interesting. Now, I mean, the corporation's been around for quite a while and it is proven to be a uh, pretty resilient form and pretty flexible, I guess, as well. What was it about the corporation that made you feel that it needed to be uh, a, a different form, a different style, and uh, you know the, the benefit uh, corp? What, what were you sure. yeah, trying to get at there? Yeah, for, it's a great question. And, and no doubt, the corporation, a lot of people think about the corporation being one of the most disruptive inventions, uh, certainly in the last 500 years. And, and that the corporate form itself is basically one of the prime engines 
of uh, modern capitalism and the economy that's lifted uh, improved quality of life all over the world and improved our comfort, convenience, etc. And, and in particular, in the last uh, hundred or so years, lifted a ton of people out of poverty. Um, the, the problem uh, that we saw or that, that others identified and, and we recognized was that the corporation itself uh, was designed uh, to, 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 with one operating principle in mind, which was to maximize uh, profits for the shareholders. And while that single operating rule can, is quite elegant and can really uh, aggregate resources and allocate resources quite efficiently, um, because they're only focused on that single-minded objective of maximizing returns, uh, that can have significant uh, unintended consequences, uh, negative consequences for both people uh, and for the planet. And so the insight of others that, that we that we saw and wanted to do something to uplift and support was what if we could uh, evolve the design of the corporation so it retained all that power to aggregate and allocate capital, but it was doing so towards a higher purpose than just maximizing profit. It was doing so with the purpose to create a mere material positive impact on society and the environment. And that, that slight uh, shift in the DNA of the corporation uh, is quite powerful because um, it means that all of our economic activity, all of our uh, financial, the, the huge power of the financial markets can then be oriented towards uh, creating a society that works for all, uh, not just returns that benefit shareholders. Yes. And so that, yes. That, that's the evolution that we, yes. that we thought yes. that we could make in, in the corporation and thus in the economy. Yes. No. Very interesting. And concretely, what does that look like? You know, you look yeah. at the, the form of the corporation and I right. guess, you know, what are you looking at? Um, it's fit for purpose in terms of, as yeah. you say, the, the, these other dimensions which are, you know, growing in importance and tremendous momentum now. That's it, a great question. And so it's actually uh, quite simple is uh, corporate law is governed by something called fiduciary duty, uh, a principle called shareholder primacy. Uh, and that, that principle of shareholder primacy is, is embedded in a law called the fiduciary duty of the directors of the corporation. And all B Corps do is expand that fiduciary duty so that the directors of the corporation who govern its activities and, and thus regulate its behavior are no longer accountable only to make decisions to maximize shareholder interests, they are now accountable to consider the impact of the decisions on all of the stakeholders that are impacted by the company. So it's a very small amendment to the company's governing documents that says that the, that says just that, that the, that the directors of the company are now required to consider the impact of their decisions on all stakeholders. That simple sentence really changes the legal DNA of the business and reorients the company so that it can focus with the objective of a higher purpose using the fuel of profits to achieve that higher purpose. 
Yes, yes. Now, as 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 this has been unfolding, I guess there's also been a number of um, uh, forces in play in, in with respect to you know conventional businesses and so forth, and a movement away. Generally, it seems to be the case from this uh, shareholder prim- primacy to a more stakeholder approach. And I know there's quite a bit of research now talking about this question about exactly you know how. Uh, powerful or how how real this corporate uh focus on maximizing profits really is and i know uh, uh some of the, the folks at harvard uh business mm-hmm. school and and so forth so um it's quite interesting because uh presumably you know this is this has been unfolding uh in parallel or you've been slightly ahead of, ahead of it there but but i guess that what, what you're suggesting is that actually legally it, this gives it something else. It's one thing to talk about stakeholders and to start to embrace them, but this is adding another dimension. Is that is that what you're getting at? Yeah, I think that's fine. For well, it helps companies uh, walk the talk um, because you're right. It's one thing to talk about it. It's another thing to talk about it in the face of tremendous pressures, particularly in the capital markets, uh, focused on short-term profits, right? And so, if if one is wanting to run a business. Uh, with a stakeholder orientation, it's quite helpful to have a stakeholder governance structure um, so that the legal underpinnings, the governance structure of the company, aren't at odds with the stakeholder objective. You you can't have a stakeholder objective in a shareholder corporation, right? There's an inherent tension there. And so you talk about who's catching up to who, and I think like an interesting way to think about this is actually, I think as is typically the case, uh, people move faster than institutions. Um, And so people, uh, whether they're consumers uh, who want to make purchases that align with their values or uh, workforce who want to go to work for companies uh, and bring their whole selves to work every day, or investors who want to make money and make a difference, or entrepreneurs who are motivated um, by by purpose, not just profit, um, all of those people have already been creating organizations like you described that are either, you know, they focus on stakeholder value or they focus on social impact or environmental impact. And, and all we're doing is helping the institutions catch up with those faster evolving intentions uh, of, of actual people. Um, because in general, institutions are more conservative, meaning with a small C, they're slower moving yes. uh, than people. And so the marketplace moves very fast. And the marketplace, as you said, is really moving quickly in the direction of more of a stakeholder value creation model. Um, the, the challenge is the institutions have not evolved as rapidly, and so they're sort of a, uh, 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 a force that's sort of retarding that development, right? That's slowing that, that development. And so what we're trying to do is to remove those impediments by helping those legal institutions evolve, and then, of course, as you know, we also then provide a certification, the B Corp certification, that makes it easier for consumers or workers or investors or policymakers to identify those companies that are really walking the talk and that have met the highest level of performance, uh, verified performance for their social and environmental impact. Um, and so that's, that's really our role at B Lab, is to help them re- remove the impediments 
um, and then make it easier for folks to operate this way and easier for folks like you and me to support those businesses. Great. Great. Now, I, I want to touch on and discuss in, in more detail the role of investors a little bit uh, later, maybe, and come back to sure. that. Um, but how's it going? Um, I mean, if, look, if you look at maybe first in the United States and so forth, you know, sure. uh, how, how, how many are there and how, how, how many don't renew? I mean, what are the kind of what, what are the, 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 the right. back, back numbers you look at to give you a sense of how healthy and how, uh, how this is moving forward? Yeah, that's a great question. So there are now about uh, 2,300 certified B corporations across about 150 different industries in 50 countries around the world. Um, There are, for the first time, uh, I think in the last 12 months, more B corporations outside the U.S. than inside the U.S., which we think is great news. Um, And so we're seeing leadership from all around the world, from across the pond where you're at, you know, uh, to throughout Latin America, Africa, Asia, um, and uh, th- there is leadership of this kind of new business, uh, these B Corps all over the world. And so that's that one metric that we would look at is, of course, the, the growth of the, of the community of certified B Corporations. Um, but for well, the other thing that we look at, I think it's important, is not every company is going to be able to become a certified B Corporation. The standards are quite high. The standards are quite rigorous for those that we identify as leaders of this uh, of this movement. But there's lots of people who want to be like a B Corp who say that's that's a powerful north star. I want to head in that direction. I, I may not be able to uh, uh, meet those standards, or I may not care about your standards, you know, or, or or your legal structure. But I want to move in that direction. And so the same performance standards that we use to certify B corporations are embedded in this open source uh, cloud-based platform called the B Impact Assessment. That assessment is available to any company of any size in any country anywhere in the world. Uh, and they can go uh, to beimpactassessment.net and they can begin to measure and manage their impact with the same rigor as their profits. And, and our job is to help them ask themselves the questions uh, that will enable them to create a more positive impact uh, of their business on their workforce, in their communities, and for the environment. And while there are only 2,300 certified B corporations around the world, there are over 60,000 businesses that have said, I want to be like a B Corp, and they want to be a part of the B Corp movement. Great. Um, yes. Yeah, and, and so that, that's, a, that's a big deal. And so we think the, 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 the real power of the B Corp movement uh, is these B corporations serve as sort of lighthouse brands uh, or, or drum majors of a much bigger parade to redefine success in business. And, and success for us is not everybody becoming a B Corp, but everybody managing their impact with as much rigor as their profits. And, and there's tens and tens of thousands of businesses all around the world that are doing that today. Right. Now, can you talk a bit about the standards of social and environmental performance that you, yeah. that you, you have in place? I mean, how you choose them. And um, sure. I, I understand the logic of the legal uh, changes that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, you're also putting in, in place, as you say, these kind of standards. Um, yeah. You talk a little bit about that. Yeah, happily. Um, and, and so the legal structure just sort of gives you permission, right, to go do this. And the question is, are you really doing it? And that's where the performance standards come in. And so uh, we measure on the B Impact Assessment for certification, we measure a company's uh, pra- worker practices, 
supply chain practices, community engagement, environmental practices, and, and governance practices. And so uh, on all of those things, it's not, you know, three or 33 people here at B-Lab uh, devising those standards, but we actually have an independent standards advisory council, um, two actually, one for the developed markets and one for emerging markets. Um, and those folks are, are experts in their fields around worker and labor issues, uh, around environmental issues, etc. cetera. Uh, and they're the ones who are empowered to uh, continually evolve those performance standards that we use for certification and that we make available to anybody for those impact management tools. Um, and so uh, th those folks meet uh, every, every year and uh, make sure that there's continuous improvement in our impact management tools. Um, in fact, right now, uh, they are in the middle of uh, working on version six of the B Impact Assessment. So you can think of it like software. Yes, um, yeah. The, the only thing you know about every piece of software is it's got a ton of bugs. Um, and, and, and a good uh, uh, software development company, just like a good standards organization, uh, make sure that they keep front and center the knowledge that their standards aren't perfect <laughs> and, and there's always room for improvement and we adopt that same approach. Um, and so every, every three years, our standards evolve to reflect um, the, the latest thinking on uh, how to measure and manage impact. And so in January 2019, we will launch version six of the B Impact Assessment, and then, which means about mid-year next year, April, May, June of next year, uh, we'll put out uh, a, a beta of version six of the B Impact, uh, B Impact Assessment for public comment. Um, and we typically get thousands of folks from all around the world commenting on those standards that are put forward by our Standards Advisory Council. Uh, the, the, the Advisory Council then, then integrates that feedback before releasing sort of the next version of the standards. Um, and that, that process has been in place now for, for about 10 years. Wow, um, yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, the standards are still not perfect, but, but they're an awful lot better now than they were uh, when we first started, and and, uh, and, and our, our general approach is that uh, the world needs a good standard uh, committed to a continuous improvement more than it needs a perfect one. Um, and so uh, we aim to be uh, the best-in-class standard uh, that is continuously improving. And so hopefully when we, when we launch that beta test next year, we can, uh, you can let your listeners know uh, and hopefully we can get some really good expert feedback uh, to help make sure we make them uh, as solid as they can be. Great, great. And and there are, I guess, different standards really out there at the moment. It's it's quite an interesting area. I know the SASB and in different dimensions of you know this whole thing, there's reporting standards and so forth. Are 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 they all interlinked or how does that work? Because uh, yeah, you know, that's a great question. So so we certainly incorporate the SASB metrics into our standards and, and others like GRI um, and uh, others like that. The, the one of the big differences is. For instance, the SASB standards are, uh, you know, a handful of metrics that are deemed to be financially material, uh, meaning material to the financial performance of a company in a particular industry. Uh, maybe there's a half dozen or a dozen of those metrics. Um, our metrics are not selected. Our standards are not selected because simply because they are they matter financially. We select standards because they matter if your objective is to create the greatest positive impact. Some of those, some of those practices can uh, be accretive to financial value uh, in the short term or the long term. 
Uh, some of them uh, much more so in the long term, and and some of them are not. Right, some of them are just about uh, this is how I can create a, a much higher impact for my workforce through, say, an employee ownership program uh, that isn't going to be tied to financial performance, but it is tied to addressing issues of inequality uh, and wealth creation for uh, average everyday people. And so that that one example of the difference between the B Corp standards and these other standards is ours are focused on positive impact, not just on those that uh, drive financial performance. Right. The second, the second thing that's different for what I think is important is they're, is they're quite comprehensive. And so most other standards are focused on, you know, uh, labor or environmental issues, carbon or waste, um, uh, supply chain or community giving. Um, and the B Corp standards actually look at uh, all aspects of a company's uh, practices uh, and its impact on all of its stakeholders uh, so that companies and uh, those who, uh, who are interested in supporting that company can get a much more uh, full picture of what that company's uh, uh, total impact is on all of its stakeholders. Well, I think that's a very interesting question because I've often uh, posed that question. You know, you, you see some companies doing some amazing things in the realm of sustainability and some really significant commitments and um, what, I, what I often asked is well how does that stack up against you know other dimensions of their activity as an organization just by virtue of the scale of you know their production by the scale of their carbon footprint and so forth you know as it were a kind of balance sheet and and so forth is that something that that this is that, you, that you're aiming for here yeah, you make a great point. And it, one, so one is that they're comprehensive, um, so you don't get the, the, the sense of somebody um, squeezing the balloon, right, and, and, and doing well on this practice, uh, a great environmental practice, but treating their workers poorly, uh, or being employee-owned, but dumping a bunch of uh, toxic effluents in the river, right? And so you get a sense of uh, that you're not being told uh, only half the story that serves the company. The other thing that you mentioned that I think is really important is uh, is around this notion of comparison. Uh, and so because those 60,000 companies are all assessing themselves against the same standards, we have incredible benchmarking data, which is really useful for sustainability professionals uh, or other sort of uh, social uh, impact-minded uh, business leaders, so they can see on worker issues, not just are these the right questions uh, for me to be asking about my business, but when I answer those questions, how does my performance compare to my peers? Yes. Um, yes. And, and most business people are, are pretty type A competitive folks. <laughs> that may be one of the reasons why we're attracted to business. Um, and so knowing how we're doing uh, against others uh, can be quite motivating. Yes. Um, it can, yes. It can either, it can, yeah, it can either tell us like where we're doing great, we should yeah. feel good about ourselves, and Hopefully, the, the team can feel uh, some pride in what they're doing, uh, and they can also look and say, wow, you know what, I didn't even think about this issue, um, but that seems like something we ought to care about, and oh, by the way, this is another thing that's pretty unique about the B-Impact Assessment, is next to almost every question are tools and resources that not only help explain what, say, a living wage or a life cycle assessment would be, but also give you best practices and other tools and resources to help you implement that. So, so it's really like uh, just-in-time, point-of-service, uh, impact management, where you're not only getting asked good questions, 
being able to figure out which path you want to take, but then the answer is you get to compare with others with real tools in real time to help you take the next step to improve. Yes, well, that sounds like a very powerful tool. I, I, I'm often approached by uh, large companies that have a, a great story to tell in a particular area, and and uh, what I'm trying to assess, well, how does that how does that fit in in the round, you know? And is there yeah. some kind of uh, scale? And uh, there are certain people I can I can reach out to, and they give me a sense that they're great at this, but you know, you need to be careful about this, or they, you know, they need to talk about that, or, or and things like that. Um, and that would be such a powerful. Uh, tool more generally in a fortune 500 to have something like that so you could say you know they're great at this but actually they're you know these these are other areas that they really you know that they're just not doing enough um and i, I think that's, that's right. really and, and yeah i think that i think that's one of the reasons why there's sixty thousand companies using the system right it's yes quite powerful yes um for, for not only management comparison but also for improvement and it's also one of the reasons why we're getting increasing uh, traction with, as you mentioned, with large Fortune 500 companies. Um, and it's interesting. They're not, they're not only doing it to look at themselves in the aggregate as compared to other companies, but many of them are finding it very powerful. Right? These huge corporate entities have sometimes scores of different divisions. Yes, right? yes. Um, and so it can actually be a quite a robust sort of internal uh, management tool where you know this division is looking at that division you know the, uh, the food and the personal care or Europe versus Asia or this subsidiary and that subsidiary and, and so it creates like this sort of wonderful race to the top uh, <laughs> friendly competition yes. where people are, are have, have an incentive to say oh wow here's how I'm doing and you know hey John uh, you know I got you you know this year uh, on, on, on this stuff um, but you know what? You're doing a little bit better than me on this other uh, this other area. I'd love to learn from you, right? And they're all looking at the same system. They can all see each other's stuff um, if, if the requisite permissions are given internally. Um, and, and it can be a really powerful motivating force to drive uh, improvement within a company by using it to compare divisions and subsidiaries uh, and business units. Yes, yes. It's very interesting. Now, how many companies don't make it or make it one year and fall out? Because that presumably uh, that's a reflection, I guess, of some some kind of, of how these standards, you know, how how they're upheld in a way. Is, sure, is that something you sure. look at? Yeah, it's a good question. So on, on attrition, ninety five percent of B corps every year stick, um, and so there's I would think like five percent attrition is quite low. Um, and, and when you're talking about a, a rigorous set of standards that requires people to recertify every every two years and, and pay real certification fees, right, for the for the privilege of getting uh, uh, recognized as a leader, and so 95% uh, certified B corps uh, uh, remain each year. So that, right. That's the, that's, the, that's the big number on, right, uh, right. on, on, on retention. So do, do you kick people out? I mean, that's a bit of a, you know. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, uh, certainly there are people who uh, whose score may, for some reason, fall below yes. uh, the minimum requirement. And, yes. and our job isn't to be punitive, but it is to uphold the standards. Yes. So uh, if someone falls below 80, they've got like a short cure period, like a 90-day curative period to get their to get their score back up. Uh, but if they can, we're thrilled for them to remain in the community. And if they can't, uh, then, then they'll be decertified. Uh, and we'd certainly welcome them back in when they get their score up to snuff. 
Um, uh, but but the, if you see a certified heat corporation, you, you know that they've met that very rigorous standard, and they've got to keep meeting it. It's not just like you get you get a pass once and it's good for the lifetime of the company. You have to keep on uh, meeting that standard as we issue new versions of the B-Impact assessment. Uh, people have to then retake it um, in order to maintain their certification. Um, so, so sometimes people get decertified for their score falling below. Uh, other other times, uh, more rare, but it has happened. Um, we have a pretty robust uh, complaints process, right, where uh, any member of the public or of uh, somebody's supply chain or, or workforce could say, hey, I, I see these folks are a B Corp, but uh, they're doing something that I think is either um, inconsistent with the values of the B Corp community or I see what's being represented in their uh, B Impact report uh, doesn't seem to jive with my own experience at the company. And if sort of B-Lab receives a material-specific and credible complaint about a company, we'll launch a formal investigation uh, to see what's there, give the company a chance to respond, and then that those findings go to our standards advisory council. And one of the outcomes of that is a company can be decertified, and, and that has happened. Um, so uh, our, we view our job is to maintain uh, you know, a, a really rigorous set of standards and then a, a credible sort of verification and uh, 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 verification com uh, and compliance process to make sure that there is integrity uh, to the B Corp certification so that when people see that B Corp mark, uh, they know it's a company they can believe in. Oh, I, I, I'm interested in what you're saying about the kind of B Corp like uh, companies. And I'm just wondering, yeah. you're in a, a pretty unique situation place to give an assessment i guess of of the state of sustainability the sustainability agenda in corporations you know there's certainly some uh, big uh you know uh you, you call lighthouse uh type uh companies you know like unilever and and you know many companies that are big companies that are making a real commitment on on, on some very important dimensions of of esg and sustainability and so forth um i'm just wondering what your senses get a sense of the temperature of of of, of things you know how, how is how, how how important do you think sustainability really is uh for for big companies in america and and uh, and i'm also interested i guess in what you think the drivers are because i know there's been regulatory drivers until recently which have been very important not not so much uh, in the current environment yet investors stakeholders there are another uh, many other uh, things that are coming together as a big question jay but i'm, yeah. I'm just interested yeah. you're in a, a unique position to comment on that i think sure uh, happily and so i think there's a couple of different things i think Certainly uh, with uh, small and growing businesses, not just in the U.S. but around the world, I think there's increasing appetite for sustainability and impact. I think people want to bring their whole selves to work. Um, people uh, basically uh, feel like it's been proven that you can walk and chew gum at the same time, and there's no reason why they should live in an either-or world. They, they want to live in a both-and world, which means that they want to have a job that allows them to pursue both purpose and, and profit uh, and you know make money and make a difference. And so I think you've got a lot of uh, increasing appetite for folks who are no longer asking the question about why uh, they might want to pursue uh, sustainable or high-impact activities with their business, but they're now asking the, the, the next question, which is how. And I think that's where the B Corp movement has had its most valuable contribution 
is it's, uh, it's, it's harnessing a lot of that increasing energy. And then when people say, great, now what? Uh, now there's a very concrete, tangible, easy way for people to put uh, those new energies into action. Um, I think that there's a, a different thing happening, uh, or, or not different, a related thing happening sort of at the big corporate level, like the large multinationals, and again, not, not just here, but, but around the world. And that is, I think there's also an increasing energy coming from large corporates who want to do this. Um, and they're doing it for, for one similar reason and one different reason. The similar reason is because uh, the workforce is demanding. Um, and, and that when you look at all the studies about what millennials and the generation after them want from their work lives, um, is they want purpose, not just a paycheck, and that means if you're a CEO and you want to attract and retain the best talent, uh, you, you better have a credible story to tell about why anybody should care about your business. Um, and, 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 and more and more, the answer to that is not just I'm the best in the world at what I do, but we're the best for the world in how we do it. And, and, and folks need to be able to back up statements uh, with credible actions. And, and so uh, B Corp certification or using a credible impact management tool like the B Impact Assessment is one way that those leaders can help attract and retain uh, the best talent. Another thing that's happening is, and we see this with, with very large investors, increasingly large institutional investors, talking about like the large pension funds, insurance companies, sovereign wealth funds, who control uh, uh, huge portions of the world's wealth and, and, and have an even greater sort of sway over uh, uh, corporate behavior through, the, through their power that they exert through the capital markets as, as uh, big holder investors. Increasingly, we see those investors uh, demanding uh, stronger, more credible ESG reporting, management, and governance. And whether that's uh, EU disclosure, new EU disclosure requirements on large corporates, uh, or uh, U.S. Uh, pension funds like New York Common that are beginning to say that it's their obligation to manage systemic risk. Uh, because they're invested in the system, right? They're invested in the marketplace, not just in individual companies and funds. And so if you're managing systemic risk, if you own the market, if you're what they call a universal owner, um, you, need to, you need to not beat the market, you need to improve the market, uh, which means you need to invest in funds and companies that are seeing themselves as part of the global economic system, not as an individual uh, independent entity that's trying to beat the global economic system uh, through some you know marginal uh, incremental uh, return, because all that uh, the only way they do that is by externalizing costs uh, onto the system, which ultimately depresses the value of the rest of your portfolio. Even if that one company has slightly better earnings for a short period of time, uh, the extra cost that's put on the system can depress the rest of your portfolio earnings. And if you're if you're a universal owner. 80 to 90 percent of your return is actually driven by the market, not by an individual stock pick or fund pick. And so, what we're seeing, I think, increasingly, is a recognition by those huge institutional investors that they need to manage systemic risk and try to make sure that they're improving overall market conditions. Which means investing in companies 
with this type of B Corp governing structure that aligns the interests of business and society. Um, and those kinds of companies are actually putting that governance structure into practice, uh, like certified B corporations um, that are demonstrating that they're managing those systemic risks by creating value for all their stakeholders in a measurable, verified way. And so I think that those are some of the other external capital markets trends that are just beginning to drive uh, uh, large corporate behavior to, to be considering these issues. The big tension there, of course, is back to that issue of shareholder privacy uh, that we talked about before. So you've got this like emerging recognition that we need to manage the systemic risk, but you've got a corporate law regime that actually creates systemic risk by forcing people to manage their businesses and invest their money according to the rule of shareholder privacy. And so the power of the B Corp idea is it helps to align uh, that consumer interest, that worker interest, and now that large capital markets interest, um, and helps align that with the governance structure uh, where now you have uh, all forces pushing in one direction with nothing sort of weighting it down or holding it back. Um, and so those are some of the things that we're seeing in terms of like the bigger trends around sustainability and impact management. Right. Now, I, I know many experts and lawyers now say that this, you know, as you talk about this fiduciary responsibility, the shareholder privacy doesn't actually have any solid foundation in corporate law or even corporate economics, but it hasn't, yeah, the message hasn't what, got but, through. But Fergal, you know what? The truth is there are lots of lawyers uh, that say that. There are a few. Yes. Um, and they're mostly academics, not practitioners. Right. And, and if you if you listen to the actual corporate lawyers who are working as GCs in companies, or more importantly, if you listen to the lawyers that uh, that are sitting, uh, for instance, in the U.S. as the Chief Justice of the Delaware Supreme Court, which is basically the, the Supreme Court of U.S. business interests, right? We're, we're more than two thirds yes. of all Fortune 500 com- companies are domiciled. His name is Leo Strauman, and he's written numerous articles, including the forward to a recent book on the Benefit Corporation called Benefit Corporation Law and Governance by uh, uh, a guy named Rick Alexander, who's the head of B-Lab's legal policy efforts. So Chief Justice Strauman says in that introduction that uh, he talks about the dangers of denial and that as much as we'd like it to be true that uh, corporations are not required to maximize shareholder value, that in fact the law says otherwise, and as the Chief Justice who would actually decide on a case where that was in question, I think it's probably a little bit more important to uh, sustainability professionals and to corporate attorneys uh, what the Chief Justice thinks than what a lone academic theorizes. Right, right, right. I'd like to finish maybe on that point again back to investors and and you know the the role of investors in uh, how wall street views b corps and you know is it important do they do they need to get on board does it matter um and and where are they on their journey i mean it would seem that you know the b corps you say is the fully full-blooded um uh you know uh a full-blooded expression of an ideal and you know and more than an ideal but a vision of this, you know, uh, uh, companies for good. And as you've mentioned, you know, many companies will position themselves on that 
journey they will you know maybe focus on some parts of it rather than others and um they're on a journey um for 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 investors are there investors willing to you know invest in the fully fledged vision and does that matter well of course it matters uh because we're not going to be able to scale business as a force for good without uh, access to capital to do so um and so it matters a lot and the good news is B Corps are attracting uh, capital from not only from folks who are self-identified impact investors, but also from ma- very mainstream capital providers. And so just in the last 12 months, B Corps have raised over a billion dollars in, in the private and public capital markets. Uh, we've experienced our first uh, B Corp uh, IPO. Um, and, and the stock for that company has been up significantly since they've been public. And so um, there are companies that are raising uh, tens of millions of dollars in the private market or hundreds of millions of dollars in the public capital market uh, because investors are, are at the very least saying, um, this is a great business and there's nothing about being a B Corp that prevents me from investing in them, or uh, saying, um, this is a great business and I'm even more excited about it. Uh, because it's a B Corp, because that means it's being managed to create long-term value, and I'm the kind of investor that is trying to build value over the long term for my beneficiaries. You know, and, and so I think that the there might have been questions, you know, five or six years ago about how the investment community would react to B Corps. Um, that question seems to be answered right now. It is we we experience. Uh, more and more venture capital, private equity, and now the beginnings of public market acceptance of the B Corp idea. Um, uh, granted, that that first IPO is just is just that it's it's a first. There are very few publicly traded companies that are certified B Corps, um, but that's largely because we have focused on on sort of the, the small business community to start during the first ten years of the B Corp movement. Um, as those companies grow, many of them will go public. And as the community scales to get to critical mass, as I mentioned before, we, we're getting more and more inbound interest in the B Corp movement from large uh, uh, publicly traded companies. Um, one of the more recent ones um, is a company out your neck of the woods called Danone, right? A European company, yeah. uh, Fortune 500 company, and their CEO, Emmanuel Faber, announced to his investors at his shareholder meeting earlier this year that his intention was for Genome to become the first Fortune 500 company to earn uh, B Corp status. Um, that's a pretty big deal. You know, uh, It's one thing for a small cap company to go public and, and have a successful IPO. It's a very different thing for an existing publicly traded company uh, to, make that, to make that shift. And, uh, and, and, and Faber and Genome had nothing but positive reaction uh, from their stakeholders and their investors when, when he sort of declared that as their long-term goal. So I think we're at the, at the very beginning of this next phase of growth of the B Corp movement uh, into the sort of early majority mainstream marketplace um, into those larger publicly traded companies. Great, great. And I guess finally then, so what's next? I mean, this sounds like there's tremendous momentum. You know, this uh, step uh, change with investors, this, you know, public companies and Fortune 500 yeah. is big news. It's, it's early stage, uh, I know. W- w- what do you think would be the next one or two key uh, sure. steps on this journey? 
so I think in, in addition to sort of the scaling of the movement through large companies, I think another th and, and increasingly in the increasing globalization of the movement, not only into more more countries, but being deeper in those countries and being in in, in relatively new places like Africa. Like we just opened um, a BLAB East Africa office earlier this year, our first sort of uh, toehold on the continent, and I think that's the that's the beginning of what we'll see is a much bigger presence. Um, in places like Africa and Asia uh, over the next uh, five years. But the other thing that I, I'd like to raise that I think is really important right now is uh, the increasing demand for and energy behind using business to build a more inclusive economy. What we see happening around the world, certainly in the U.S., and you've seen it in, in, in the U.K. for sure, Brexit, is we see sort of this centrifugal force of, of people retreating into sort of tribal uh, 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 tribal positions and increasingly populist energy around the world with people pretty angry um, at an economic uh, system and a political system that they feel really doesn't work for them. And, uh, and, and so one of the things that I think is most inspiring to me about the B Corp movement is over a year ago, the B Corp movement planted a flag and say, uh, we are here to build a more inclusive economy, to create business that works for everyone. And, uh, and the B Corps launched what they call an inclusive economy challenge, where hundreds of B Corps from all around the world uh, uh, took the inclusive economy challenge and, and picked three different metrics, uh, up to three different metrics on B Lab's inclusive economy metric set uh, where they were going to improve uh, their inclusion, equity, or diversity practices. It could have been with their workforce, it could have been with their supply chain, it could have been with ownership practices. Um, and we've had tremendous uh, interest, not only in B Corps and diving deeper around inclusion, uh, but also in non-B corporations and in potential partners, government, and, uh, government agencies around the world who uh, want to support uh, for-profit businesses that are trying to create uh, a more inclusive economy and to bring in to, to, to the economy those who've been kept on the margins and who feel, uh, uh, who feel uh, disempowered by an economic system that seems to care only about uh, returning ever-increasing shares of capital to ever-decreasing percentages of the population. And so the, the big thing that I see in the future for Google is business leaders rallying behind uh, this idea of building an inclusive economy that works for everyone. And I think that's, that's one of the biggest needs uh, uh, and also one of the biggest opportunities uh, for businesses to rebuild trust with uh, a public that uh, has lost trust in, in our economic system. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great vision, Jay. And thank you so much for sharing the, your experience, your insights, the great work you're doing. And I wish you the very best success in the future. Thanks, Virgil. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. Please sign up at the sustainabilityagenda.com website or on iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes. 